Fighter attitude, I'm in the octagon with the podcast on. Let's talk about it on Scrapitude. You know, I've been the best, grab my belt and begin to flex. So wild, I might hit the rep. We got the winner circle segments and the two on five takeaways with Tim and Jeff. So just kick back, grab a brew, it's fight night. So you know what we have to do, whether a power punch or a grapple move. You know, we got you covered on Scrapitude. So just kick back, grab a brew, it's fight night. So you know what we have to do, whether a power punch or a grapple move. You know, we got you covered on Scrapitude. Yeah, scrap, 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 yeah, scrap, scrap. Howdy, y'all. What's going on? You are listening to Tim Talk, the podcast that combines three key perspectives to help you win your UFC pay-per-view wagers. Those three perspectives are as follows. An aggregate of the odds makers. A look at the data courtesy of the Scraptitude Analytics Database. And that of myself, Timothy Lewis, taking you coast to coast to fill in all the nooks and crannies in between. The goal? To give you the most comprehensive set of information possible to empower you to make the most informed decisions with your money. Because that's the goal, right? To win. So while at the end of each fight, I'm going to give you what I believe to be probabilistically the most likely outcome, my ultimate goal is to give you the tools you need to come to the decision you think is best. As is customary, I'm going to take this time to review the results of Tim Talk 282 covering UFC 282. We oversaw six fights on that podcast. Chris Curtis and Joaquin Buckley, Billy Quarantillo and Alex Hernandez, Darren Till and Dreykus DuPlessis, Bryce Mitchell and Ilya Toporia, Patty Pimblett versus Jared Gordon, and Jan Blahovich versus Magomed Ankalaev. My misses for the night... We're on that latter fight, the draw between Jan Blahovic and Magomed Ankalaev that saw the vacant title be suspended to this upcoming event's headliner between Glover Teixeira and Jamal Hill, sorry, Jamal Hill, as well as a misfire on the Billy Quarantillo versus Alex Hernandez fight, which started off well, but ended poorly. The call of the night was predicting the upset victory of Chris Curtis over Joaquin Buckley. For UFC 283, I am covering another six fights, starting off with Tiago Moises versus Melk Costa, followed by Paul Craig and Johnny Walker, Lauren Murphy versus Jessica Andrade, Gilbert Burns versus Neil Magny, Davison Figueredo versus Brandon Moreno, and Glover Teixeira versus Jamal Hill. But there's one thing extra that I am going to do for this podcast at the request of some of my listeners, and that is to do a parlay of the night. So stick around for that. I'll provide it after I've concluded all six fights. So without any further ado, let's get started. Yo, yeah. First on the docket, we have Tiago Moises versus Melquizael Costa, also known as Melk Costa. I have Tiago Moises as an aggregate favorite of minus 304 to the plus 240 of Costa. That converts to a 75.2% likelihood of victory for Tiago Moises to the 29.4% likelihood of Costa. Now, Moises is a guy that you've heard of before. He's had several big fights in the UFC, or at least noteworthy bouts. He's 
competed against Alexander Hernandez, Bobby Green, Islam Makachev, uh, Demir Ismagulov, a high strength of competition for Tiago Moises. Meanwhile, Melk Costa is coming in for his first UFC bout on short notice after Goram Kutataladze dropped out due to injury. Both men have yet to eclipse 30 years old with Moises at 27 and Costa at 26. The main divider here, as I emphasized previously, is the difference in the strength of schedule here. Moises' opponents have an average win rate of 75% and an average number of of wins of 11.5. Compare that to the 68% opponent win percentage of Costa and the 6.83 average opponent wins. There is a chasm between the two in terms of who they fought, and I believe this is also reflected in their skill profiles. Costa is a forward fighter who's going to break out some flashy strikes, and he does have talent. He comes in as a southpaw. He's awkward, But the guys that he's had to execute against just weren't able to provide much resistance. Meanwhile, Moises has a more developed wrestling game. He has a more developed grappling profile. And he's a very competent striker who will be able to mitigate risks in that regard. Now, originally covering this fight, I was mining for value. I saw the record of Costa at 19 and 4 and I or 19 and 5. And I thought, here, this guy, maybe he can present some challenges for. Tiago Moises, who has been solid but unspectacular during his UFC tenure. Instead, I found a lot of reaffirming information on the basis of Tiago Moises. I think he employs a conservative approach here against the late replacement fighter, grounds him with regularity, and either notches a submission or a decision victory. Yo, yeah. Next up, we have a light heavyweight clash between the Bear Jew, Paul Craig, and Johnny Walker. Currently, Paul Craig sits at a plus 155 underdog to the minus 191 aggregate favorite. That is Johnny Walker. That converts to a 39.2% implied likelihood of victory for Paul Craig to the 65.8% implied likelihood of victory for Johnny Walker. Now, these guys are two very different fighters. Johnny Walker stands 6'6 with a... Massive 82-inch reach. He's extremely explosive, and he is the quintessential glass cannon. He either knocks you out or gets knocked out. Paul Craig, on the other hand, isn't the most renowned fighter, but when he wins, he takes a scalp with him. He's a methodical guy who trusts his game plan and has a nasty submission profile. To me, this bout is a fascinating dichotomy. Both guys have a high loss-by-finish rate, but they lose for different reasons. For Paul Craig, it's oftentimes his physical limitations that don't allow him to compete in certain facets of the sport, namely when it becomes a battle of reactivity and striking prowess. Meanwhile, Johnny Walker has mental limitations as well as a highly questionable chin, as exemplified by his startling 2.16 knockdown absorption rate. That means for every 100 significant strikes that Johnny Walker absorbs, 2.16 of them put him on his butt. What the odds makers are saying here is that it's going to be easier for Johnny Walker to exploit the weaknesses of Paul Craig with his explosive athleticism. After all, every fight starts on the feet, and Paul Craig is not a prolific wrestler. Meanwhile, Paul Craig does not have the lethality in his striking to threaten Johnny Walker as some of his other opponents have. 
That said, Paul Craig and his 100% finish rate have overcome unlikely odds before, namely his victory against Magomed Ankalaev, who just fought for the vacant light heavyweight title, and again against Jamal Hill, who will main event this card also fighting for the vacant light heavyweight title. If there's a guy who pulls a rabbit out of a hat, his name is Paul the Bear Jew Craig. In my view, Craig has performed better against better fighters. He might not have the athletic ability of Johnny Walker, but being able to think the game is just as important. And I believe he finds a way in this one. Not sure how, not sure when, but if the past is in any way predictive of the future, I believe he gets it done inside the distance. Yo, yeah. The third fight I'll be covering is Lauren Murphy versus Jessica Andrade. Currently, Murphy is a plus 353 underdog to the minus 494 favorite that is Jessica Andrade. In terms of likelihood, this converts to a 22.1% chance of victory for Murphy to an 83.2% chance of victory for Andrade, and I'm not surprised. The 39-year-old Lauren Murphy just got the brakes beat off her by Valentina Shevchenko in a fight that underlined just how vital athleticism is in the context of WMMA. Either you have it or you don't. And Lauren Murphy ain't gonna find any. That said, where she doesn't have athleticism, she does have size in this fight. Jessica Andrade has bounced around weight classes and especially recently has fluctuated between the 115-pound and 125-pound weight class. At 5'1", I expect her to be the smaller fighter in this bout. The question is, will Lauren Murphy being bigger lend to her being stronger? Personally, I don't think so. She can't touch Jessica Andrade in terms of takedowns land per round at .95 to .37. So right off the bat, I expect perhaps the most determinant factor in any MMA bout, the ability to dictate where the fight takes place to lie with Jessica Andrade. One factor that does concern me, however, is Andrade's high loss by finish rate. Now, Murphy is by no means a finisher, but she does have the capacity with a 50% knockout rate. But if she's at all going to test the durability of Jessica Andrade, who sports that 19% loss by finish rate, she's not going to manage to do so in the striking realm. Andrade is going to be too fast and she'll hit too hard. My best guess is that if Murphy has any chance, she has to win one of these wrestling exchanges and end up in top position where she can leverage her larger size. Now, I don't think it's likely, but I do think it's more likely than the odds makers convey. Even still, I'm going to be rolling with Jessica Andrade here. She has too many weapons. She hits too hard. And this is just a bad matchup all around for Lauren Murphy taking on the Brazilian in Brazil. Yo, yeah. Next up is Gilbert Burns versus Neil Magny. This is about between two of the elder statesmen in the welterweight division and also two guys who are still vying to have their name in that title fight conversation. Currently, that lies more so with Gilbert Burns, who is a minus 441 favorite to the plus 321 underdog of Neil Magny. That converts to an 85.1% likelihood of victory for Burns the 23.8% likelihood of Neil Magny. Now, as I said, elder statesman. Gilbert Burns is 36 years old. Neil Magny is 35 years old. 
Both these guys have been around for a long time and fought some elite competition. In terms of experience, Neil Magny slightly outpaces Gilbert Burns. He has far more fights with 36 to Burns 25, and while his opponent win rate is less than a percentage lower at 78.8%, he does have a higher average opponent wins at 13.75 to 12.48. I'm going to say that those figures are somewhat negligible, but it is interesting that he has competed so many more times. That said, with such an extensive resume for Neil Magny, we have well-defined strengths and weaknesses. Three out of his last four losses have come to Shavkat Rachmanov, Michael Chiesa, and Rafael Dos Anjos. In all three of these fights, he could not determine where the bout took place, and he was easily grounded, regularly grounded, and either succumbed to decision or submission losses. And that's bad news considering he's fighting Gilbert Burns, who is built like a fucking pit bull. Magny has always dealt with a strength discrepancy in his fights. He's a tall fighter with a long wingspan, and he does have the capacity to generate some odd leverage, but there's a certain archetype of fighter that gives him problems, and that is a fighter who can apply a grappling-intensive, top-control-oriented game plan. Shavkat did it. Chiesa did it. RDA did it. Magny's going to have to thread the needle in this one if he's to win, striking from distance and denying telegraph takedown attempts. I just don't see him being able to deal with the superior explosiveness and strength that Gilbert Burns offers. So for me, as well as the odd makers, this is a classic styles make fights context, and I don't believe Gilbert Burns faces much adversity in notching a victory. Yo, yeah. Next up, we have the co-main event of the evening, the quadrilogy, the fight to settle the flyweight division between Davison Figueredo and Brandon Moreno. At the time of collecting the odds, it was a dead even fight with Brandon Moreno at a minus 113 to the minus 112 of Figueredo. It doesn't get closer than that, and if you watch the previous bouts, you understand why. The first bout ended in a draw that was only that because of a low blow by Davison Figueredo. The next bout, Brandon Moreno shocked the world by submitting Davison Figueredo with a rear naked choke in a dominant performance. The third bout was the closest of the three where Davison Figueredo made some much needed adjustments and managed to drop his adversary three times on his way to a unanimous decision 48-47 victory. If you've been with us for a while, you know that I covered both the second and third fights on Tim Talk and both times I chose Brandon Moreno. The reason being age-adjusted experience. Brandon Moreno might not have the win rate. He might not have the finish rate. He might not have the highlight reel of Davison Figueredo, but he does have more experience. He has forged himself further in the fiery crucible of combat, and he has done it at a much younger age. That matters, but perhaps most importantly, beyond that experience, is the durability of Brandon Moreno. He's the guy with the chin that can take the shot from Figueredo in a way nobody else at 125 pounds can. But this is a new fight, and there's so much to unpackage. Now, I've long been a guy that said fighters fight. Coaches are overrated. Yes, they matter. Preparation matters. But at the end of the day, it's the athlete, their ability to prioritize information and to execute 
on fight night. Exposure to information helps, but no coach has the skeleton key that unlocks a fighter's ability to perform beyond their skill profile or athletic limitations. So when two fighters get to this level, coaches can make an incremental difference, which does matter in a fight that is this close, but oftentimes it's not the deal we make it out to be when we see a fighter switch from one camp to another or join a high-profile team. But in this case, both men have coaching differences coming into this bout. Brandon Moreno has the headline ordeal of James Krause and the legal repercussions of the supposed, the alleged gambling scheme that he's involved with. Now, Moreno only had James Krause as his coach for one fight, his last bout against Kai Kara France for the interim flyweight title, a bout that he won via third round TKO. It should be noted, however, that Brandon Moreno had defeated Kai Carr France previously. On the other side of the equation, we have Davison Figueredo. For the trilogy fight, he joined Henry Cejudo, who's blossoming as one of the better coaches in mixed martial arts, and devised a fantastic game plan to deal with the attributes of Brandon Moreno. This camp, however, Figueredo is back to Brazil for his fight camp, and I don't think that we should underestimate that in a time that we're all perhaps overestimating the James Krause, Brandon Moreno debacle. To me, the last fight came down to the round-by-round scoring structure. We saw Brandon Moreno win probably two-thirds of the fight in terms of overall time, but the biggest moments belonged to Davis and Figueredo and allowed him to swing rounds. In that bout, the onus was, of course, on Figueredo to make the adjustments. In this one, though, Brandon Moreno has the opportunity to adjust to those adjustments, and with a little more discipline, he should be able to mitigate those big moments that swung the rounds for Davis and Figueredo. Additionally, we have to be aware that Davis and Figueredo is now 35 years old. And I know, it's not like he's ancient by any means, but at these lower weight classes, the effects of aging seem to compound in a way that they don't for bigger fighters. If you take the time to look at all the ranked fighters from 125 pounds to 155 pounds, you're going to see a very skimpy list of those that are 35 years old or older. Combine that with the age-adjusted experience angle of Brandon Moreno actually competing more times in mixed martial arts than Davis and Figueredo. We have a 29-year-old primed and realizing his full potential. I'm sticking to my guns. I think Bram Moreno beats Davison Figueredo's ass in his own backyard. Yo, yeah. Last up, we have the main event of the evening. A settlement for the light heavyweight division's throne. That is Glover Teixeira taking on Jamal Hill. Currently, Glover Teixeira sits at a plus 100 to the minus 124 of Jamal Hill. A near-even fight where Glover Teixeira has an implied likelihood of victory of 50% to the implied likelihood of victory of Jamal Hill of 55.4%. Now, this fight is a split between generations. Glover Teixeira is coming in at 43 years old, taking on the 31-year-old Jamal Hill. You heard that right, folks. 43 years old. And he looks it too, might I add. But with age comes experience. And there's no doubt that Glover Teixeira has the tools to win this fight. 
He's the better wrestler and by far the better grappler. And in Jamal Hill's UFC tenure, the only time we've seen him succumb to an opponent is via submission to the aforementioned Paul Craig. Glover Teixeira has established his place at light heavyweight by being one of the only wrestling forward, top position dominant fighters. But beyond that, it's been a legendary career for Glover Teixeira. He has existed throughout multiple iterations of this light heavyweight division, and to have secured a belt at 41 years old is absolutely legendary. But it was no coincidence, no mistake. Glover Teixeira has an 80% career win rate. He only loses by finish throughout his 41 career fights 9.7% of the time. He's durable, he's heavy-handed, he's technical, and he's a menace on the mat. So can Glover Teixeira win this fight despite being the smallest of underdogs at 43 years old? Absolutely. Willie? Absolutely the fuck not. Listen, y'all, it's one thing to have the skill profile, and it's another thing to have the physical capacity to execute. And if you aren't worried about Glover Teixeira's capacity to execute at this juncture of his career, then you're high. And while Glover Teixeira on paper could be a bad matchup for Jamal Hill, I would say the opposite is equally true the other way around. I can express that no better than with this data point. In his last three fights against Jiri Prohashka, Jan Blahovich, and Tiago Santos, Glover Teixeira has been hit with 61% of the significant strikes thrown his way. While he's had the toughness, the durability to persevere, this demonstrates a decline in his reflexes, his quick twitch ability. And it couldn't be at a worse time fighting Jamal Hill, a southpaw with a ton of power who hits at weird angles, has great timing, and starts fast. Sweet dreams, Glover. I have Jamal taking this one via knockout. Yo, yeah. All right, y'all. Before getting out of here, I'm going to hit you with this five-leg parlay. Now, some of the fighters here you're going to realize I did not cover on this podcast. I don't cover every fight because not every fight is either interesting enough or has a sufficient data sample to really get a grasp from that perspective of how the fight is going to go. The five fighters selected are Josanne Nunes defeating Zara Farn, Tiago Moises defeating Melk Costa, Jelton Aimeida defeating Shamil Abadurkahimov, yikes, Gilbert Burns beating Neil Magny, and Jamal Hill defeating Glover Teixeira. That's a five-leg parlay at plus 255. I realize that perhaps it's not the juice you're looking for, but on this Brazil card, there's a lot of fights stacked. Guess what? In favor of the Brazilians. So make do with that what you will. I wish you all the best of luck, and I'm super grateful for those of you who tune in. I do this for y'all. I'm trying to generate good content, and I really appreciate feedback. But something to help me keep going, subscribe, rate, and review to this program. I appreciate you. Scraptitude appreciates you. But until next time, be easy and bet responsibly.